Thank you, Lucas and Bob. First of all, how is my volume? Can everybody hear me? <laughs> all right. Excellent. Set this down. In RSV, please. <laughs> All right, well, it's good to be back. Um, we've uh, been for about two months now in the same book of the Bible, with the exception of maybe a Sunday or two. Um, and that book is Philippians. And so We've worked our way through it starting back in mid-July. Um, last time I, I spoke, um, you know, I felt the Lord leading me to speak on first, the first chapter in Philippians. And then after that, Pastor Marshall was with us, um, and he spent the remainder of the time that he had with us before he transitioned from us talking about the book of Philippians. And then Patty, actually Lucas, was in there. Um, which was the book that you talked about? The Psalms. That was, that was the uh, inhale, the, the inhale, the Psalms. Um, and then Patty came through and she spoke about Philippians last time. And uh, so we pretty much made our way through the book. So we're all the way through chapter 3, and so only one chapter remains. So I'm coming today with Philippians chapter 4, the last chapter of Philippians. Um, and I think it's a bookend to a season uh, where I think the Lord did have and does have something for us uh, in this, in this book. So, one of the things that, that I'd like to start with, though, is Sunday night Bible study. Very interesting, very interesting time and season. We've been gathering there for years now, um, probably three or four, three or four years. We don't even know. Um, but we, we take our time, and we go through scriptures. Um, we go through different books of the Bible. And when I say we take our time, we can spend a year going through Genesis. We can spend a year going through Exodus. And not that we're slow, it's just, it's that good. You know, it's that good when the Lord opens scriptures up. And currently, we're in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, and right off the bat, you know, even though I, I felt sort of the Lord leading me and, and grappling with me around the book of Philippians, there's something in, in 1 Corinthians that you know, I, I think it's a great theme and a great lens for just keeping in mind as we, as we approach the book of Philippians. Um, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's talking about God's wisdom versus human wisdom. And let me just sum it up for you in this way. God's wisdom makes human wisdom feeble. But the interesting thing about it is the things that seem to make sense to us the things that seem wise to us as, as people, as humans, when we look at how God approaches things, it just turns it, turns it on its head. It seems like, wow, that, that seems really counterintuitive the way that we as people would think about doing anything. Um, and yet God continually brings forth great, wonderful things through ways that people would never even imagine or think about. As a matter of fact, it seems like God brings about things in ways that are opposite in terms of the way that we would naturally go about it. And so keep that lens in mind as we talk about Philippians. God actually brings things to pass through ways that seem really counterintuitive, and I think that's a great lens to keep in mind as we go into the book of Philippians. So I'm going to start, um, we're going to be talking about chapter 4, and we're actually going to be dealing with contentment. So we're going to jump into chapter 4 and pick it up at verse 10 and go through verse 20 on contentment. Chapter 4 verse 10 starts, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at last you have revived your concern for me. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. And in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, 
no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your accounts. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul is talking about contentment and being content, and being content kind of no matter what's going on in whatever circumstance. And I'd like us to take a step back, um, because I think a lot of times, you know, we've got a topic that we're going to cover from Scripture, and the topic today is contentment, and I think we're kind of primed to sort of look at things and say, okay, so what are the steps, what are the things I need to do in order to develop contentment, in order to develop that attitude of contentment? And, and I, I say pause with that for a moment because it may not necessarily be about what is it that we do in order to develop contentment. And so hear me out on this. So I spend a lot of time in airports, and one of the things that I like to do when I'm killing time in an airport is I go into the bookstore. And in the bookstore, they have all the bestsellers. And I like the nonfiction parts, the nonfiction section. And so I'll peruse the titles. I'll pick out books. These are the things that I read while I'm you know, in flight, usually 22-hour flights. I mean, they're long flights that I take. They're overseas. Uh, so I have a lot of time. And so I find that I read actually a lot of books. But there are a lot of books that I don't pick up just by looking at the title. And, and let me give you a sense for here, here are the sort of titles that, that I skim through that just never catch my attention. But I notice there's a pattern to how the books are titled and marketed. Uh, tell me if you can identify the pattern. So these, these are actual books that you can find in the bookstores. Um, and they, there's a pattern to them. Actual title, number one, Rise, Rise, R-I-S-E, Rise is the title of the book. Three Practical Steps for Advancing Your Career. That caught my eye. Another title, Decide and Deliver. Five Steps to Breakthrough Performance in Your Organization. I have a company. These are the books I look at. Next title, Three Simple Steps, A Map to Success in Business and Life. Now we're getting out of business into life. Three Simple Steps. Next title, Fully Human. Three Steps to Grow Your Emotional Fitness. I thought about getting that one from Mike. All right? Next title, Three Steps to Awakening. Now we're getting into the ether with some things. Final title, and this is one that actually I just found humorous, First Step to Forever. Anybody know that book? Written by Justin Bieber. 10 years ago when he was 15. So your grandchildren may have this book um, at the height of Beaver Fever. So do you notice anything about the titles? Do you notice anything about how they're actually titled and marketed? Numbers and steps. And so this is what I mean when I say, you know, what's interesting is we're sort of conditioned in a way to sort of look for sort of a simple, quick, easy route to achieving or getting what it is that we want. Quick, easy. If we're talking about contentment, okay, tell me, what do we need to do in order to get contentment? What do we need to do in order to achieve that? I think we're sort of conditioned for that. The, the general message is basically, you know, if you lack X, Y, or Z in your life, here are the things that you can do in order to achieve and, and have X, Y, Z in your life. And I say, just pause for a moment. There, there are important things that we must do, absolutely. But when we consider contentment, at least the way contentment is being described in the New Testament, Scripture suggests that it's not simply about what we do, but actually what actually is done to us. Actually, it's not just about what we do. It's the things and situations that we actually go through that are very much a part of how we're developed by God. So before we jump into the do, which verse 13, everybody knows, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, let's just hold off on that for a moment and let's pay attention to the circumstances that happened to Paul that enable him to actually say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
let's look at the circumstances of things that actually happened to him because I think we don't have a very robust lens or language for appreciating our circumstances and how important they are in our development. I can give you this from my actual experience in, in the job that I do. So as a psychologist for, for these years, you know, one of the things that I think is absolutely true in like 99.9% .9 of the cases that I, I work with, the people who I run across who are the most resilient, the people who have the strongest character, who thrive in life, who thrive in a relationship, you wonder how they get there, here's what I do see. They get there because, yes, they are doing some things well in life, but they actually get there because they've gone through some really terrible things. That is actually a part of the equation. They've gone through some really difficult things, and not things of their own doing or making, things that happen to them. And somehow God has this formula where he sort of uses situations that we go through, not that God is the author of our difficulty, but he uses these situations in ways where it actually develops in us more Christ-likeness, more character, more things that make us look more like Jesus. And these are the things that actually work together. And so I've told you once, probably a long time ago, if anybody remembers this, um, a story that just stays with me from some of the work that I've done over in Haiti. And this was a, a lady telling me about her son. I'd gone over to Haiti about eight years ago in response to an earthquake. And they had a huge earthquake that killed over 200,000 people. And I was there in order to help, and I'd been working in Haiti for a number of months by this point. And I was there talking to people who you know, lost family members, who lost everything that they owned. Um, and one of the ladies who was sort of like uh, our, our, my host, she would bring people to me. I would spend an hour with them talking through you know, how to deal with sort of the trauma of what they'd gone through. And then uh, the next person would come, and I was back to back to back, just talking to people back to back. And I had a little bit of a break for lunch. And in that, that break for lunch, she started to talk to me, and she started to tell me about her own experience that day of the earthquake. And she told me that, basically, she was at work, her and her husband, they worked together, and the earthquake happened, 7.2, something like that. Um, and the first thing, first thought that came to her mind were her kids, obviously. She had a daughter who was 11, a son who was 7, and they were home by themselves. And so, of course, she tries to get home as fast as she can. And, and what would take 20 minutes to get there actually took a couple of hours because the roads were torn up and everything was collapsed. And she said she turned on her street to look at her house, to look towards her house, and the house was completely gone. And she said then fear set in because she saw her daughter standing outside of the rubble, but she did not see her son. So she knew that her son was actually buried under the rubble of the house. And then she began to tell me how they actually dug through the rubble, um, fearing the worst. Many people lost family members that day. But they found her son alive, unhurt, without a scratch on him, because he was actually in a little crawl space underneath all the rubble. And he was just huddled up, and they pulled him out of that unharmed. And so they were absolutely happy. They were praising God for this. Here's the thing, though, she said. In the days that followed that, she noticed that her son began to become really withdrawn. Now, it doesn't take a therapist to know that kids go through PTSD, right? And she noticed that he really became withdrawn at certain times, and those times happened to be right before they would eat a meal, the family would normally pray. And those are the times when he refused to pray, and he got really silent, and he got really withdrawn. And she said, you know, I began to notice this day after day, and eventually I just took him aside and said, hey, what's, what's going on? I noticed that, you know, you're not praying with the family. And, you know, seven years old, kid is seven years old. He says, you know, Mom, I, I don't, I don't want to pray anymore. Well, why don't you want to pray, she said. He said, because I did pray. And I prayed when the ground was shaking. He didn't know what an earthquake was. I prayed when the ground was shaking that God would make it stop. And you know what, Mom? God didn't listen to me. It didn't stop. He said, Mom, you know what actually stopped the earthquake? She said, what? She said, I did. He thinks he stopped the earthquake. She said, what do you mean? How did, how did you stop the earthquake? He said, well, when God didn't listen to me, I actually tried to stop the ground from shaking. And so he bent down to actually put his hands on the floor. And he said, when he put his hands on the floor, that's when the house stopped moving. Now, that's when the house finished collapsing and the earthquake was over. But he said, when I put my hands on the ground to make it stop moving, that's when the earthquake stopped. So here's a seven-year-old who thinks the God who he was raised with did not respond to him in his, cri in his crisis and in his fear 
And he thinks that he is the one who then stopped the earthquake. Now I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, my goodness, th this, is, this is deep and difficult. But here's the amazing thing in terms of what the mom responded with. And this is where I feel like, okay, God speaks through people and speaks in just the way that we need it sometimes. Mom did not miss a beat. She said, you know what, God actually did hear your prayer. He heard your prayer. God put that power in your hands because he wanted you to act on your own behalf. God put the power in your hands that you prayed for because he wanted you to act on your own behalf. Now for this kid who thought that God had forsaken him, that clicked. That clicked in a way would allow him to actually reconnect with God because he realized, okay, well, God was with me through the midst of that, and God actually helped me through the midst of that. Now, this is a seven-year-old making sense of a situation, and we may be saying, okay, God didn't put the power in a kid's hand and stop an earthquake, but that is actually what saved the kid's life because when the house collapsed, he had to be in this position in order to actually survive that. That is what God used to bring him through. Now, this kid is 15 years old today. Can you imagine what it is like to actually go through something so horrendous and the message that comes out of it is, whatever you pray for, whatever you look to God for, you have to act in concert with that. God wants you to act on that in a very tangible way. This kid had a lesson that I wish every kid would get. I cannot wait for 10 more years where this kid is 25 and on his own because in the Haitian context, that kid is going to make a difference, having learned that. I want all kids to know that. But would you wish an earthquake on any kid? Would you wish that experience on any kid? No, you would not. It's horrendous. And this is what we mean by God actually takes really difficult situations. And even though God is not the author of these situations, God uses these situations and draws us closer to him. And I think in a lot of times we're just like that kid when he was seven years old because we can look at our own situations when we go through pain, when we go through anxiety, when we go through fear. And, and our prayer to God in the midst of that is, God, make it stop. You know, step into the midst of this and make it stop right now, cold turkey. And God's response is the same thing to us as God's response was to that seven-year-old. The response is, I'm not going to deliver you from it, but I'm going to see you through it. And on the other side of this, you're going to realize that I was there with you the whole time. And as a result of that, you're going to realize that I'm there with you still, and I brought you through it. And you can use that to look forward to say the next time you're in something, I'm going to be right there with you, even though it may not feel like in the moment you can find me. This is what God is doing with us. This is what God is doing with us. And so I think a lot of times when in the midst of our difficulty and pain and anguish, when we pray and cry out to God and we feel like we get a non-response, I think this is actually the response a lot of times. It's not, I'm going to deliver you from it. It's, I'm going to actually take you through it. And I'm going to see you through it, too, on the other side. And I'll be with you. But a lot of times, we don't see that while we're going through it. We see it in hindsight. That's something we recognize on the other side of it. All of these are elements that we are finding in Philippians. Let's take a look, then, at the context of this. And keep in mind, keep in mind with this context in Philippians, that whole idea from, from, second, from 1 Corinthians where God's wisdom turns our wisdom on its head. It seems like, wow, that's really counterintuitive, God. What are you doing? But yet God is bringing things out of it. God's message is clear. If you can recall the whole context of this book of Philippians, if, we, if you think back, you don't remember this, but back when we first started talking about this book, we talked about, you know, God sends a message to us today through this book because this church in Philippi was established in a really unique way. The establishment of this church is a message to us today. If you can recall back from Acts chapter 16, it talks about how this church was actually founded. The Apostle Paul was trying to go and establish churches, and he found that he was blocked or prohibited from going to the regions and the towns that he thought he was trying to get to to establish the churches, and he had this dream where he was basically told to go to this area, Philippi. So he followed the dream, and all of a sudden, all the obstacles were no longer there. He was able to make it here. This is where God actually wanted him to be. But this is a really interesting town because there's not a whole lot of Jewish folks in this town. And it's not a very big city or major town. So this is kind of a minor place, not a lot of Jewish folks, you know, but this is where God is leading him. And in Acts chapter 16, it's very interesting because 
it basically names three people who God actually encounters and has Paul encounter and God touches, and these are the people who become foundational to this church. Now, in order to actually understand the sort of the significance of this, understand this also. There is this prayer that goes back to antiquity that Jewish men always pray. And that prayer is, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. It's the prayer that they pray every day. Now, to be fair, this is not a prayer meant to minimize or devalue anybody. At best, what it is meant to do is to say, hey, God, you've placed the Torah commands on our shoulders. As Jewish men, we have, to, we have the most things that we have to follow, followed by Jewish women, and then followed by Gentiles. Small section that they have to follow. Since we have this huge amount that we have to follow, thank you, God, for the honor of placing the Torah in our hands, and we have to follow this. Right? So it's sort of, at best, an honor. An honor. We get to actually follow and entrusted with the Torah and these commandments. But at worst, at worst, in the hearts and minds of people, that actually sets up a hierarchy that actually breeds devaluing people, devaluing Gentiles, devaluing women, definitely devaluing slaves and anybody at the bottom of the hierarchy. And the Gentiles had their version of this. This went back 300 years before this time. The Gentiles had a, a version of this as well. So this is, this is a thought that's going on back in the, these days. And so when you look at Galatians 3.28, and, and Paul is talking about there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, he's speaking to this sentiment, and he's speaking it in that same order. Same order as that prayer that's been prayed. And so if you keep that in mind, and then you look at well, who are the people that God actually touched when he founded this church? Lydia, Acts chapter 16, a Jewess, a lady. And she became sort of the person who opened her home and the church was actually started in her home. There was this girl who used to tell fortunes and she was possessed by a demon and she used that to tell fortunes. God actually intervened, freed her from that demonic possession. And that girl could no longer tell fortunes and make money for her slave owners, she was a slave. And then Paul was thrown in jail, and God had to use an earthquake to free him, and in response to him not running away, the jailer comes and says, oh my goodness, you're still here, what must I do to be saved? And he was actually saved, him and his whole household, the jailer, a Gentile. So you've got the founding people of this church in Acts chapter 16, the only people who are named in Philippi, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. And this is what God uses to say, I didn't need you to go anyplace else, I need you to go there first, and this is what I'm going to use to develop this church. In the message of this very book is a church that basically says God is showing us his values. The very people whose society would tend to devalue, God is showing us that he's aligning with them. He's taking them and he's actually esteeming the very people who we would actually lower because these are how, this is how God views us. This is how God is actually making his mark in the world. So we as Christians, if we're to have the mind of Christ, there are implications for us for this. If we're going to have the mind of Christ, and God values people this way, how are we then to conform to the image of Christ? This is the book of Philippians. This is God's message through this. He's just taking human knowledge and wisdom who says, you know, if you're going to develop a church, get the smartest, get the brightest, get the people who are the most esteemed. And God says, no, I'm going to flip that on its head. I'm going to use that in order to spread my gospel through all of Europe. I'm going to use that to actually reach the farthest ends of the earth. And you know what? God's kingdom is developing as a result of things that seem very counterintuitive in the ways that people would approach it. So this is God's wisdom. And this is how it starts off. And so when you think about things like contentment, it's going to follow a very similar pattern, something that seems a little twisted from the way we may look at it, but yet God uses something very counterintuitive to bring it about. When we look at contentment, here's how I would define it, and this is just Rick's definition based on I've looked at it in Scripture, and I've looked at it in the dictionary, and they don't seem to be the same, so I'm going to have to figure out, okay, how is Scripture caption this a little bit di different than you may find it in the dictionary? Contentment Obviously, we would think about, oh, okay, I, all my needs are met, I'm fine, I'm happy, I'm good. I'm good, in a slang term, all right? Contentment. I don't have any needs. In the Bible, though, it's not necessarily talking about you don't have any needs. It's actually talking about your dependence is on the Lord 
as opposed to your dependence on people or even self-reliance. The Greek word for contentment is actually talking about reliance, sufficiency. But when you look at how Paul is actually using and talking about it, it's really dependence on the Lord that's not based in depending on people, and it's not even based on depending on yourself. It's a confident dependence that God has got you. If you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, it's coming on the screen. Oh, okay, Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let me just go there then. Thanks. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 6. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Contentment is being confident that no matter what the situation or circumstance, God is with you. God is present. God is in the midst of it, and God does not forsake you. It's a confidence that comes from knowing that no matter what situations we go through, God is there. Even if we do not feel like he is there, even if we feel like this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me, God is still present. Even if it feels like he's not rescuing me from the situation, God is still present. This is the type of confidence and faith that Paul is actually talking about. And how do we get there? Well, Paul says he doesn't get there because he read it in a book and he gives mental assent. Oh, that's a good idea. Paul is saying he got there because he learned it. He learned it not from a book. He learned it because he went through some things. Life has actually dealt him some situations that caused him to reflect on the fact that I've been in some real difficulty. I've gone through some dark days. And as a result of that, when I look back, I see that God has brought me through it. God was there in the midst of it. And from that, he can continue to say it, and God will continue to be there. And so when we look at what is it that exactly Paul is talking about, look at verses four, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul's saying, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. And in all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and being in need. Paul has gone through highs, lows, ups, downs, and when he has gone through the highs, lows, and ups, and downs, here is the thing that Paul has recognized. Even in difficulty, he made it through. God was with him. Don't know what it felt like when he was going through it, but in looking back on it, God was with him. This is foresight that comes from hindsight. Foresight, knowledge that comes from hindsight. Looking back over the things that you've actually endured and experienced and saw that God was still present in the midst of it. So this is one of the places where I would say, you know, there, there's an advantage that our congregation has when it comes to something like this, in my opinion. In my opinion. Young people, millennials and younger, have a little bit of a disadvantage on this one. A little bit of a disadvantage because maybe they have not lived through experiences yet that they will live through as they continue to keep living that will allow them to reflect on some things that were difficult and see how God was still present in bringing them through that. They may not have that vantage point. Now, some of them do, all right? But for us, we're a little bit older. And so we can look back and we can see times and places in our lives where, you know what, that was a really dark, difficult time. But yet here I still stand. And I'm still connected to God. And as a matter of fact, I'm connected to God in some ways that because I went through that and God has brought me through it, I'm connected even more. And I learned some things about him in the process. That is the type of confidence and knowledge that comes from hindsight. And so here's, the, here's what I do sort of credit with the, the younger generation with, though. They are absolutely willing to call a spade a spade. You know that phrase, okay? Call a spade a shovel, even, if you know what I mean when I say that. When, when they hear something like, hey, even though horrendous things happen to you, 
be content. They're going to say, that's what you tell people so that they can continue to hold on to something that's not real. They're going to call that out because that does not feel right. That does not feel right. That does not seem intuitive. And I think that honesty is actually a great thing in younger generations. I think that's a great thing. I think the, I think the challenge that older folks have is we, we sort of learn to sort of smile and roll with whatever crazy stuff is said from the pulpit um, and whatever crazy stuff seems to come across from the Bible. I'm not, talk, I'm not saying it's errant. I'm just saying it sounds counterintuitive. God is saying something that seems really opposed to what I want to do and what my natural proclivity is. And we just sort of roll with it. And I'm like, well, if, if we had a little bit of what the younger generation had and say, okay, when we read this stuff, it actually catches our attention and says, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And then we grapple with it. We've got the life experiences where we can then look back and God can show us exactly this is how it is. So it's a bit of both. It's like I think we've got the younger generation who is really willing to be honest. And I think we've got an older generation who's got all the life experience that can sort of give us, yeah, this is true and verify it. But I think we've got an older generation that sort of can hear something from Scripture that is actually meant to be a twist, meant to get your attention, and we just roll with it. And so if we could just bring them both together, that's why I think the church with sort of young and old and everybody in between is really, really great. Um, but I think this is where we have an advantage, and I'm not calling us old. I'm just saying we're experienced, all right? And I think that is actually a good thing for us. So Paul actually is able to look back, understand how God is present, and that is how he's able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where that confidence comes from. And if I can pause for a moment and just maybe challenge one way that we think about Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it would be this. However you use that verse, it is fine. Please don't hear me to cast aspersions to say you're doing it wrong because I don't have the monopoly on what God is doing in your life. I really don't. But I want to speak to the context of that verse. A lot of times, well, I'll just speak to my personal experience. When I was in college and I had a really difficult exam, and it was usually math, one of the prayers that I would pray before the test is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I would study, and I would pray that prayer. Before a big game in sports, God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are not bad things, all right? They're not. In, in some ways, they're sort of a good pep before you take on a big challenge. It's okay. But that is actually not what this verse is about. This verse is about, okay, Rick, and I'm going to give you a little bit about my experience on this one. I took a lot of math in college. You would not know that by looking at my grades, okay? I took a lot of math in college that I did not have to take. And the reason that I took so much math in college was because when I took it as a freshman, which I didn't have to take, but you know what, I'm going to take it, it was math beyond any math that I'd ever encountered in my life. And I'm like, I've never learned or even knew that math like this existed. It was so far beyond anything I'd learned in high school. And I struggled with it. And at the end of it, I eked out a grade that was a passing grade, but it wasn't a good grade. A passing grade, but not a good grade. B minus. It gets worse, trust me, trust me, trust me. So then I, well, you know, I'm going to take calculus two because I don't feel like I understood calculus one until I actually finished the class. So I'm going to take calculus two now that I got a little bit under my belt and sort of redeem myself. And I took calculus two and got a C. And then I'm like, I feel like I understand this calculus stuff at last, but I only get it after the fact. So then I took some geometry that I don't even know what it is. I took math every semester up until my senior year. I was, do you know that movie, A Beautiful Mind? It's a movie about a brilliant mathematician, okay? He was one of the professors, all right? I was in, I was in that building taking that math with people who were born to do math, and I'm a psych person. I should not have been there, all right? And the point is, the point is this. I would still pray that prayer before every exam. God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And at every exam, I would bomb that exam. I would not get an A. I would not get a B. If there were 200 points that you get out of the test, I would get 30. All right? That sounds like an F, but nobody got 200. It was just that hard. 
What did I learn from that process? Here's what I learned. When I come away with my D, what I understood was this abject sense of failure that I have. God was still there, and God still brought me through it. When I failed in the big game, God was still there, and God brought me through it. This verse is not for triumphalism when you are heading in and thinking you're going to take victory. This verse actually comes from looking back at your hardships, realizing that when you crashed and burned, when you failed, when you've actually had the most difficult seasons of your life, God was there and actually brought you through it, and you learned some things about God, that he was there. And that is why Paul is able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because actually Christ was there when I was in lack, in need, when I didn't have this, when I was shipwrecked, when I was in prison. That's where God was actually pointing him back to, saying that I was still there. And this is the context of this verse. So I would still say for anybody, hey, if you actually use this verse in order to sort of pep yourself up and to take on the world, keep doing it. Keep doing it. But what this verse is actually for is when you're going through the real difficult season, Know that God is there. Know that God is there to bring you through it. And God is going to get you through it. And God's kingdom is going to continue to be established. That whatever you go through is not going to thwart or hinder that plan or path at all. God has got it. That's the confidence that comes through contentment. And that's the attitude that Paul is actually speaking to with the Philippian church. Here's another twist. The Philippian church was established with people who you wouldn't think to establish a church with. Contentment actually comes as a result of dealing with the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, particularly the downs. Contentment comes from dealing with the lack and the difficulty. Twist. You think contentment comes from having enough. Contentment is not actually based on the circumstance. Contentment is based on dependence and confidence in God that no matter what the circumstance is, you've got what you need in Jesus Christ. My church background, of course, African-American, African-American church background. So there's something that we sort of pass, through, pass along through the years, and it's a saying. And so it's a saying that, that I hold on to um, that's really helpful for me and, and understand the context of this. African-American church tradition We've gone through some real difficult struggles that continue to happen. Now, those struggles aren't the same as they were before. Trust me, we're not talking about slavery, all right? But those struggles continue to happen. So the nature of the church is how do you mobilize in the face of struggle and difficulty and things that are sort of designed to tear you down, and what does God give you for that? And here's the saying that comes out of that. You may not have what you want in life. You may not even have what you think you need. But if you have Jesus, he is more than enough. That's the saying. If you have Jesus, he is more than enough for any situation, for the worst pain, for the worst anguish. You mean to tell me Jesus is actually going to sustain you in the midst of that? Well, that's something that you only really learn in hindsight after God brings you through some things and you know it. That's the confidence where you can say and hold on to that. It happens because God brings you through some things. Third twist, Paul is giving this message of contentment to the church at Philippi, and the church at Philippi is unique in a really particular way besides how it was founded. The church at Philippi gives resources to Paul on more than one occasion. Now, that's not unusual, right? But Paul, who was a tent maker, who refused to actually go into a town and ask for money while he's preaching because he didn't want the gospel to be confused with any of that, so he'll actually do work, pay for, pay for his own way. Sometimes Paul gets locked up. Sometimes. A lot of times Paul gets locked up. Paul gets into trouble. Okay, and when he's locked up, he can't work. So now he's in lean times. <laughs> in those lean times, it's not unusual for one of the churches to actually send some reserves, some resources, to help Paul through those lean seasons. That's not unusual at all. What, what the church at Philippi is doing is not unusual. What is unusual? They typically do this much more so than any other church, and the church at Philippi 
is extremely poor, extremely poorer than the other churches. When you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and I know that's not going to pop up because Frank is doing triple duty back there, so let me just go there and read that to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 1. Let me just start with the first couple of verses. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. Churches of Macedonia, that's where Philippi is. Philippi is one of these churches, about three of them. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Did you catch that? Their affliction, which their affliction, extreme poverty. In, in the Greek, is interesting. We're not talking about, oh, they fell upon hard times, and you know what, they're, they're a little short this month. We're talking about, the word is like bone poor. I don't know if you get the imagery of that, when you are bone poor. That is, we would say po, you know, P-O, can't afford the O-R. That is poor continually, struggle continually. And that is how they're actually talking about the church at Philippi. So Paul is actually bringing a message of contentment saying, hey, you know what, I'm actually fine no matter what my situation is. And, and he's speaking this to a church that actually is, is really abundant in their giving to him. And they're extremely poor, poorer than all the other churches. And this gives you the context of why Paul is actually going about things in this passage. Because he's really trying to say, hey, great, thanks for thinking of me. I appreciate you thinking about my situation, but you know what? It's all good. Please don't feel compelled that you got to do this. I've learned to be content in highs and lows when things are abundant, when things are lean. It's all good. Now we understand. Because Paul understands the nature and the situation that this church actually deals with. They're, they're poor. But this church, joyful, abundant in their giving, somehow they manage to still do this. They consult God, and out of that, comes this overflow where the poorest church is the church that is the one being the most consistent in the giving to Paul. Paul's resources, most consistently, are not coming from the wealthier churches. It's coming from the poorer churches. Twist, God, if you're Paul, what is this? Because when I actually am in need, you're sitting in the reserves, not from the wealthy churches, but you're actually showing up in the poorer churches. They're the ones with the joyful attitude. They're the ones with the giving and the abundance there. And that's yet another twist. So not only does God sort of take the people who we devalue and use those people in align with them and builds his church, not only does God say contentment is going to come through the difficulty and the lack, God is saying joy and giving is coming from poverty and through poverty. Total twist. Total twist. And this is why it doesn't make sense to people. This is why it absolutely flies in the face of human reason and rationale. And so, given this, I do think God has something for us in, in all of this. You know, and if I had to sort of draw an application out of this, for, for us in particular, it would be this. When we think about Let's just say poverty, but let's just say lack. It doesn't always have to be about money. When I look around, I don't see thousands of people. I don't see hundreds of people. I see a core group of faithful folks who really could be anyplace else, and it is not a problem or a sin to be anyplace else, but God has got you here. And, and you continue to show up week upon week and you continue to make the drive, however long it may be. You continue to get here bright and early and wake up no matter how late you've gone to bed. You continue to run and do two and three different things because, you know what, nobody's here, so I've got it. You, know, you continue to lead worship when I know that you're leading worship probably five different places. You know, it's just those types of things that when I think about us, I'm like, wow, okay, it's not the money issue, it's energy, effort. And, and we're not showing up week after week, sending up praises and worship to God, praying for one another, 
and, and ministry going forth out of an abundance of we've got all the time, we've got all the people, we've got all the energy. We're actually doing that from a place where we're actually admittedly tired, exhausted. We've gone through seasons where we've gone through pastor changes, and those pastor changes were quite unexpected. Some of them, the earliest ones, tragic. And as a result of sort of continuing on the process, you can get tired, you can get depleted. But yet, Sunday upon Sunday, here we are, giving, offering, out of, not of our abundance, out of what seems to be, wow, we're sort of sputtering along sometimes, and maybe we don't feel like we got all the gas in the tank that we need. And you know what? God sees that. God sees that. God values that. If you can think about it this way, there's a, you know the story of the, the chicken and the pig? Okay, chicken and the pig. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appropriate it a little bit differently, though. So it's actually a story about giving, but giving sacrificially. Not out of abundance, sacrificially. Abundance giving is, hey, we've got a telephone and somebody donated a million dollars and we're going to flash their name up in lights because they, they gave us a generous gift. Sacrificially is the widow who's on a fixed income who feels that the Lord is leading her to contribute to this and so she writes a check for $15 and it'll never be flashed on the TV. But who's given more? Who's given more? Sacrificial giving, when it comes to the chicken and the pig, chicken and the pig were off walking down the street one day, and as they walked through the streets of L.A., they noticed there was a group of church folks, and the church folks had set up some tents and a table, and they were feeding the homeless people who were living along the streets of L.A. So it was a breakfast, charity breakfast, as a part of their ministry. And the chicken and the pig look at each other and it's like, you know, that's a great great cause. That, those people are serving the Lord right there. We should make a contribution so they can continue to feed more and more people for breakfast. So the chicken comes up with the idea, you know what, let's give them some ham and eggs. That'll be our contribution. <laughs> and the pig says, wait a second, you can give them some eggs and that's a generous donation. But for me to make that contribution, that is a sacrifice. Get the point? When we look at Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, this is the story of the widow's mite. Luke 21. And this is Jesus speaking. He looked up, that's Jesus, looked up, and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Jesus saw her when nobody else did. Where the world would put the million dollar donation up in lights, God actually looks at, well, who's given from a sacrificial place? Abundance is wonderful. Giving generously is great. Giving sacrificially, that's a whole nother level. But when I think about us as a congregation, I think about, wow, we still continue to do this. We've got folks who've been at this for longer than I've been here and longer than some of us have maybe even been alive. They've been at this. They've been through the seasons of up and down. They can look back and see how God has continued to sustain them and they have that confidence that no matter what comes, God will continue to be there and be present. That is absolutely not a question. But when I think about, okay, well, we're, we're at the season now where we're, we're having to figure out, well, what's the way forward? What's the next step? And we're, we're going to be in a season for the next few weeks and months, obviously, of figuring that out together. But, you know, I want to say this. When I think about our DNA, our, our, the, the Catholics call it a charism. Like, who, is, who are you at your core? This is one of those elements. This is a church where I've always known us to be sacrificial. Sacrificial in how we give, sacrificial in how we approach each other and how we support one another. One of the things I told Patty when we first used to come here, I'm like, there's so many ministries going on in this small church that I'm like, and you know what, when I show up to the men's thing and when I show up to the retreat, it's the same guys showing up for each other. We don't even have enough people. We don't have thousands of people where it's like different faces each time. It's the same people showing up to support one another. 
And that can be tiring. But we're doing it. And I'm not saying that we need to continue to do that, okay? I'm just saying that's the sacrificial attitude that's always been a part of who we are that me coming in as a new person noticed. And so no matter where God takes us as a congregation, I think our DNA is still going to show itself. We can decide to continue to move forward and find a new pastor, and we'll still have to be sacrificial. We can decide to divest and let's take all our resources and put it into another church and bless them. And you know what? That would be sacrificial. We're still going to be consistent with that element that God has put in us from the very beginning. And that is, that is what God actually calls us to. And so there's freedom in how we discern where we need to go. But understand that I think Philippians gives us something to chew on as a congregation because I think what looks like failure in the world's eyes, we have to realize that God does not see as failure. God looks at, okay, we're going to take those situations that it may cause you to feel horrible, it may be painful, but what you know is that I'm going to be there right there every step of the way with you. Even though you may have to search, you may have to straight to find me, I'm going to be there. And sometimes you're going to have to look back to see I was actually there, but you can trust that I was there the whole time. And in that is our confidence. That's where we have. So we'll be able to say, and this is in closing, first chapter of Philippians where we started with this whole thing, 1 verse 6, God is faithful. He will complete the good work that he began among us. Before I was here, before many of us here, I don't think there's anybody here before the two of you, but back then, God began a work, and God is faithful to bring about to the day of Christ, and we can hold that with confidence and assurance because we've seen how God has brought us through. And I just pray that we continue to keep that in mind. I pray that God get that in our spirit, and I pray that we can give glory to God no matter what the outcome is. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you once again that you, Father, are in control, that you have set us on a path, Lord, that you've called us to you through Jesus Christ, Lord, and that you're not done with us, you're not done with any of us, Lord, but that you take us, Lord, and you mold us, and you grow us, and you develop us into more Christ-likeness, Lord, and I pray that you would take our hurts, our pains, Lord, and that you would allow us to just find you in the midst of it, Lord, that we could rest in you, Lord, knowing, Lord, that you are there, and if we have you, we have more than enough. Not that we don't have needs, not that we don't have lack, not that we don't have pain, Lord, but when we have you, we have all that we need in order to bring you glory and get through it. And I thank you, God, for your presence. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.